Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We appreciate you tuning in. Special thanks here at the outset to James Steinbach for helping with the website, sometimes at a moment's notice. I've had to call on him a lot recently, so thanks so much, James, for your help. Thanks also to Ed Hackey for producing the show and to Rebecca Terhune for help with marketing and media. If you haven't yet had the chance to go on over to iTunes and give us a rating, that would be very helpful, and it only takes a few minutes. Just log into your iTunes account and give us a rating. And that would be very helpful, or whatever platform you listen on. We'd appreciate you giving us a rating at those various locations. Okay, we hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Aaron Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, where I'm tutor in biblical studies. Our guest today is Dr. Don Payne, who is Associate Professor of Theology and Christian Formation at Denver Seminary, and whose book, Already Sanctified, A Theology of the Christian Life in Light of God's Completed Work, aims to provide us with a recalibration of our doctrines of sanctification in light of how the language of sanctification is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. During my time teaching at Denver Seminary, I had the pleasure of having a number of ad hoc conversations with Don as he was writing this book, and through those conversations, he convinced me a few years ago that my understanding of sanctification was indeed in need of a tune-up. And so I'm really delighted to host him today for a discussion on this eminently practical and life-giving topic. Don, welcome to OnScript. Thanks, Aaron. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Don, fairly early on in the book, it's clear that you think something's gone amiss with the doctrine of sanctification, um, especially or maybe particularly within evangelical Protestant circles. So what aspect of sanctification did you think was especially in need of recalibrating? Well, I would say that of the aspects of sanctification, and there are multiple aspects throughout the canon of Scripture, that uh, two of them on either end need recalibration, that which is what I argue in the book, the accomplished aspect, that which is the decisive or definitive work that God already has done. And there is also a recalibration needed of this really popular motif that is called progressive sanctification. And one of the big pushes of my argument is that over time, particularly since the Reformation, these aspects of the doctrine of sanctification have become problematically disproportioned or misproportioned. And the aspect we call progressive sanctification has become, uh, in a sense, larger than life, far larger than the, the biblical data would warrant. And that decisive or accomplished aspect of sanctification has become a little bit more than a throwaway aspect. And when you say, just so we're clear, so when you say progressive sanctification and maybe the popular notion of that, what, what do you mean by that term and how does it differ from accomplished sanctification? Well, progressive sanctification, as that is uh, widely, pretty widely understood, is a reference to the sort of 
a, cumul a cumulative maturity, cumulative character change. Um, it's really taken from a variety of New Testament passages that do indeed talk about our growth and transformation. But those passages have quite often been taken to refer to sanctification, which interestingly, they never do. So what the New Testament sees as genuine growth in Christian maturity is often taken to be progressive sanctification. And my argument is that's not really the case. That's not a proper use of those terms. On the other end of that spectrum, accomplished sanctification is what I hope, what I try to show in the book, the, the consistent and robust thread line of argument throughout the scriptures. And that is what God has already done through the Holy Spirit to bring us into God's presence, to cleanse us from sin. Uh, and the, the phrase I use quite often is, accomplished sanctification is what God does to fit us for God's presence and for God's purposes. But that's mm -hmm. a very different from a sort of linear progressive growth experience. Indeed, indeed. And, and you mentioned that both of these um, emphases, or at least in the book, you talk about both of these emphases that are present within the Protestant reformers. Um, and you, and you, um, you point out maybe how, how later interpreters of the reformers have misread or um, maybe perhaps uh, inappropriately emphasized some aspects of their thought um, to the exclusion of others. So what do you think that the Protestant reformers, especially perhaps um, Luther and Calvin and Wesley, uh, what do you think they get right? And conversely, maybe where did they potentially send us down the wrong path? That's interesting. Luther himself, well, Luther and Calvin both, let's take the two uh, key figures in the of the magisterial reformation. Luther and Calvin both were reacting quite sternly against late, what was going on in late medieval Roman Catholic theology. And what I try to point out rather briefly in the book is that the late medieval Catholic Church sort of set the terms of engagement. And methodologically, we, we always know that whoever makes the rules always wins the game, right? If you define the terms of engagement. Well, those terms of engagement that the late medieval Roman Catholic Church established for the doctrine of sanctification were basically moral and ethical in, uh, in character. Or I should say they, they referred to sanctification as our character. And then the way they fused sanctification with justification became theologically problematic because justification became dependent on or contingent upon one's moral qualification to receive God's grace. Well, Luther and Calvin, in my view, rightly pushed back against that, but they still seemed to accept that the basic definition of terms that described sanctification as moral improvement. They simply repositioned sanctification and justification differently. What they got right, though, to the point of your question, uh, Luther really sort of subsumed sanctification underneath justification and made both of them uh, contention upon our faith. And the argument that I present in the book really does have some resonance 
with what Luther originally was trying to do. And I, I think um, I think Luther got that right. Luther and even the Lutheran tradition subsequently has tended to be rather suspicious of too much talk about sanctification for fear that it would veer back into the errors of late medieval Romanism. Calvin, on the other hand, uh, repositioned the relationship between justification and sanctification somewhat differently. And Calvin, what, what I think Calvin got right was his really vigorous emphasis on sanctification as placing us in Christ. And so Calvin made some of those points of connectivity between sanctification and union with Christ, sanctification and our our life in Christ. And I think those are very theologically healthy and they're biblically justifiable. So I think they, they got those right. But then in subsequent generations of, of both Lutheranism and Calvinism, uh, the, the matters got sort of obscured or confused in various ways. Let me, let me point out in the Calvinistic tradition, particularly sanctification was clearly made to be a, a subsequent reality to justification that was connected logically via the doctrine of election. So those who were justified will in fact be sanctified because they're the elect of God. But sanctification in the Calvinistic Reformed tradition came to be the moniker for everything that happens subsequent to one's regeneration. And that's how, I mean, speaking rather broadly, that's how in the, the Calvinistic tradition and its various offshoots, sanctification has come to be the, the category that describes the Christian life. Everything after God's saving acts is lumped into the, the box or the bucket of sanctification. Lumped into the bucket. That's a great, that's a good... It's a good, good turn of phrase. Lump, we don't want lumpy buckets. No, no, you can't have those <laughs> theologically. No, no, indeed. So um, I know you fairly well, so I'm going to ask you a question that I think I know the answer to, but I think it's a really helpful framework um, to begin thinking about this this topic of sanctification. Uh, you worked in uh, for a number of years in pastoral ministry um, in Tennessee, uh, in Colorado. Then you also worked as the director of training and mentoring um, prior to your current appointment as a professor in theology. And so you bring with you to this topic, and I think it's really evident when I read your book, how much your your practical experience informs your approach to the topic. Um, but you're bringing this wealth of practical experience to the topic, in addition to your experience and, and obviously your expertise as an academic theologian. But speaking from your practical experience with parishioners, with students in training and mentoring, what impact do you think um, that faulty views of sanctification have on spiritual growth? What I've observed, and I know this is in many respects anecdotal, but I have enough anecdotal evidence that I'm pretty confident in what I've observed. Mm -hmm. When you drop the word sanctification in any typical church or Christian circle where people have even a modicum of theological literacy, in other words, they know the term, they've heard the term, you drop that term and say, for example, tonight we're going to talk about the doctrine of sanctification. You can be pretty sure that a significant proportion of any audience, if they know that term, 
are going to either sigh internally or roll their eyes, maybe behind their closed eyelids. Uh, and what they're going to be thinking is, oh, great. Here we go again. We get to talk about all of my spiritual inadequacies, and we get to end with a, a fire-me-up motivational talk about how I need to really get into, um, get into gear with my discipleship. I've got to really get more serious about growing up in Christ. That's what the notion of sanctification, and particularly progressive sanctification, has come to in lots and lots of Christian circles. It's a, it, it denotes the Christian life in all of its vicissitudes and struggles and the experiential dimension of it. And it's become, I hope this is not overstated, but it's become a bit of an albatross around people's shoulders. So it's not a particularly liberating conversation. And not in my experience. And yet you, and you want to, and you want to, to reclaim that. It should be a liberating conversation. Right, right. As I, as I've poured around through the scriptures on this for some years now, that's been the, uh, the impression that has increasingly formed in, in my thinking is that the doctrine of sanctification and the Old Testament version, consecration, were quite animating. They, they were motivating and sometimes challenging and sometimes indicting. But on the whole, these were very life-giving doctrines. And if you look at the patterns of how the biblical writers appealed to them, mm -hmm. very different ethos than what we see in, in broad popular circles of evangelicalism, at least in the U.S. Sure. I mean, there's, there's sort of this U.S. bootstraps mentality that we bring to the doctrine of sanctification, like we bring to other things. And it, it, um, and I think what was so convicting about reading your book is that um, it's, it's clear that our, our doctrine of sanctification, um, we, don't, we don't think about what it's for. We think about it as an end, of it, in, in, an end in and of itself. And you, you want to emphasize that actually, this is, this is in some stage uh, a preparatory step for us. It prepares us for God's presence. Is that right? Yeah, very much, very much. And I think that is really clear, particularly in the Old Testament, where, mm. where the pace is set for what happens with sanctification in the New Testament. Mm. And, if, and if anything, one of my contentions is that the, the way the doctrine of sanctification has been formulated from the New Testament, it has lost touch with its Old Testament roots. Well, let's talk about the Bible, um, because I think you do something that's actually, uh, it's a very brave thing to do uh, for a theologian to devote. To read I think the Bible. That's what you're trying not to say, right? <laughs> well, it's not, though. It's not that just, I mean, we hope that theologians read the Bible, but you actually devoted about two thirds of the book to carefully reading and writing about the Bible. Um, so I, I think, first of all, I think it's a brave thing to do. And second of all, I think you do it really well. So I just want to, um, I just want to say congratulations and kudos for that, because it's really refreshing to read, um, a, a rigorous doctrine, um, doctrinal treatment of something that's also deeply rooted in the text. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. And I needed to hear that because I, <laughs> you know, I'm in that spot of, of, uh, thinking I did what I knew how to do and I, I don't know what true biblical scholars are going to think of this. 
Well, but we have our own warts. And I think, um, and I, that kind of leads me to my question, because I know that you are a person who thinks deeply about theological method. So my question about um, just the way that you've approached the topic and the way that you've chosen to present your findings is what, what made you to decide to lay your emphasis in the text itself, rather than say, as a lot of theologians do in the Protestant tradition or in Protestant readings of these texts, etc. Um, and what do you think you gained by approaching sanctification in that way? Well, I, I think, and I hope what I gained to answer your final question first, <laughs> I, I think what I gained, this may sound rather uh, arrogant, but I think I gained a truer understanding of what's really going on with sanctification. Now, some will disagree with me, I know, but I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to hold my ground on that. But to the first part of your question, let me give a little bit of history of how I got into this to begin with. We we have at Denver Seminary, as probably many seminaries have, a sort of summative or capstone experience for our Master of Divinity students. We call it MDiv Orals. It's a little bit like a miniature ordination exam. Students have to write a doctrinal paper expressing their own doctrinal positions on a, on all the standard loci. And then they have to defend it in front of a couple of faculty members. So I've participated in those MDiv orals exams for many years. And I began to see, probably over 10 years ago, a, a curious pattern, and it was a very consistent pattern, that when students would write their doctrinal paper and come to the doctrine of sanctification, which was one of the required topics they had to address, they would very consistently do at least one, if not two things. First of all, they would spend almost all their time talking about progressive sanctification and give little, if any, attention to that which already had been accomplished by God. And secondly, they would build their doctrine of progressive sanctification on New Testament texts that did not even mention sanctification, such as Romans 12, 2, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, which are great texts about you know, growth in Christ, but the sanctification, the Hagias word group is nowhere in those texts. And that began to get my attention. And I thought this, this is really curious. And why are, why are they doing that? And to, to be fair, I realized, well, they're doing exactly what we've taught them to do. They're doing exactly what they see written in most familiar evangelical systematic theology texts. But this began to really puzzle me. So I started to, that, that's what launched me on a real years long on and off exploration of this as I was looking at the actual uses of both Kadosh in the Old Testament and the Hagios word group in the New Testament. And as I traced them through, I realized, first of all, that from a strictly quantitative perspective, the overwhelming majority of uses of both those words had nothing to do with progressive growth in maturity. Nothing. They talked about something very different. And then as I probed even deeper, I realized that what they did talk about was appealed to in the New Testament as the basis for this doctrine of transformation, which those texts do refer to. Uh, and and so over these over the span of years, that's what really began to force me to look at the shape of the, the, the canonical shape of the doctrine, not merely the 
quantitative comparative usages, which I think are significant, but the way the accomplished aspect of sanctification actually functions to drive and define uh, what is yet to be fulfilled, what is yet ahead of us, and those, those imperatives to grow. Now, that's the methodological part. How does the doctrine and its aspects function within, mm. the, within the canon? That's, mm. that's what intrigues me always about theological method is how, how does this thing work when you take it apart? Yeah, I remember one of my, one of my earliest memories of, of Don Payne was when I was a student at Denver Seminary, and he gave a paper at a conference on theological method and fixing his truck. So I think on, in all aspects, he is a person who is interested in how things work. Yes, it's all part the, of the same fabric. <laughs> that's right. That's right. They're all put together. Is that paper published anywhere? No, no. Oh, that's a shame. That's I might shame. even have trouble finding it in my files and my computer. Oh. If I, uh, maybe I could dig it up. I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a shame. Well, um, let's let's talk more about how this thing works in the biblical material. So, in the Old Testament, you look especially as you just said at the language of consecration. So, as you've um, as you've delved into this this data, what are the key insights regarding sanctification or consecration that emerge from the Old Testament that we should know about when we're thinking about a doctrine of sanctification? Well, the key features of that pattern are that consecration, and, and the Kadosh word group is used this way very consistently, consecration when either persons or, in some cases, things, inanimate objects, are consecrated, made holy. It always has to do with those persons or things being brought into God's presence and being fitted for God's purposes. And behind that, in a sense, is a covenantal framework. God makes covenant, and God unilaterally sets people apart. God unilaterally consecrates the nation of Israel. God set that nation apart for God's own special purposes, you know, the Abrahamic covenant. So that's where it starts, covenantally framed, which is, if you think about it in contemporary language, very relationally driven. And within that covenantal relational framework, consecration consistently has to do with being in the presence of God and being fitted for the purposes of God. That's the simplest way I can say it. And you can find that iterated in lots and lots of texts all the way into the historical books where uh, the, the temple is the place where God establishes God's own presence by putting God's name there. And that's a, a, that's a consecrated holy space because God is present there through God's name. That's just one mm. iteration. I found it curious, though. It, well, not more than curious, challenging when I looked at the number of instances in the Pentateuch where the inanimate realm is made holy, all the way from the priest's garments to the the altar, um, the utensils that were used. And if you back up uh, prior to the Levitical codes into the Exodus, you see one of the really early instances of Kadosh in Exodus 3, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush. And what is called holy is, if I put it rather crassly, just the dirt Moses stands upon, or the space he occupies in front of the bush. Well, why would dirt 
why would a patch of dirt be holy? Did it change in, you know, in its chemical properties? Did something alter? Mm -hmm. No, it's because that dirt or the space Moses occupied was in the presence of God. And, and that seems to be the sort of navigational trajectory that's charted with holiness or consecration really early in the New Testament. Anything, anyone who comes into the presence of God is made holy or has to be made holy. That example, I think, that and um, and your example of the Sabbath early on really, I think, highlights the the issue of talking about holiness in strictly moral terms, because clearly dirt is not, you know, that's not a moral agent. Um, but but it, it's equally interesting to think about dirt in like relational terms, you know, but but you you want to call um, consecration a relational a relational framework. So how, how is the relationality of consecration, how does that play out in texts that seemingly um, have something to do with moral purity, say Isaiah's vision? Um, how does it change our reading of that text, uh, like Isaiah's vision, if we, ter- if we turn holiness into a relational term rather than a moral term? Okay, it does have connectivity to moral and ethical requirements. So it may not be in its essence a moral or ethical term, but it has profound moral and ethical implications. And you really do see that played out, which I argue in the book, you see that played out in the New Testament texts where the fact that God's people have been made holy is the basis for them having ethical requirements on their lives. We are responsible Mm. to obey the Lord. So there are uh, vibrant connections or vibrant implications for moral purity. And in fact, for, for a person to be fitted for the presence of God, that was, that was part of the consecrating act. I don't know exactly what the rituals were, but there was some sort of a, you know, symbolic and and ritual enactment or ritual Mm. process that went through to enact moral purification so that we could be in the presence of the Lord. All that to say, sanctification, consecration do have profound moral implications, but they do not refer primarily to linear moral improvement and growth. They refer to moral cleansing. And the, and the obedience that grows from that. So, so coming back to Isaiah's vision, then, um, if we read that as a moral cleansing, the outworking of that is relational, primarily. That's the purpose of moral cleansing, if I'm understanding you correctly. Well, it is. Let me add a piece to that. It is relational and it is missional, to use a very familiar term. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is an intrinsic relational thing, if I could put it that way, going on between Isaiah and, and the Lord in Isaiah 6. Mm-hmm. And when he is cleansed with the coal on his tongue uh, or his lips, then that is the basis for his being sent out. God mm-hmm. says to him, I've, I have a job for you to do. And, and at the same time, that was a profoundly transforming moment. His life mm-hmm. was altered forever because mm-hmm. of that encounter. But it's a really, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a life-giving shift to say that Isaiah 6 is not primarily about Isaiah's moral improvement <laughs> but it's about or or you know recognition of his moral failures it's about Isaiah 
needing to be fitted to be in the presence of God and fit in for the purposes of God. Um, I think that's a really important, um, important shift in emphasis for how I've at least heard and experienced that text being preached or taught. Um, and I think in it, and, and that's one small example of what you do, I think, throughout your treatment of the Old Testament text. So, um, let's change speed a bit here and we'll do our first speed round. Okay. <laughs> now, I know you you're an on-script listener, so you're, you're familiar with speed rounds. I am. Um, <laughs> so the rules of the speed round are that you answer and you can say there are no, there are no right answers or wrong answers. Um, you can answer whatever you want to say, and it should be the first thing that comes to mind. And you don't have to justify your answer um, in any sense. Okay? okay. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. I think. <laughs> uh, if you could have a drink with any other person than Jesus, either living or dead, who would it be? Probably one of my favorite theologians from the contemporary era. I think I'd have a drink with Tom Torrance. Okay. Oh, that's great. Uh, what is your favorite work? Of... I think I've bored you with that answer. But no, no, no. <laughs> no. no, I was, no, I, no, I have a deep fondness for the Torrances. Um, I just had, you know, I just had drinks with um, Tom Torrance's great nephew like two days ago. So Andrew? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we were talking about Tom Torrance's uh, library and it just like the stories are, are rather surreal. So I feel really privileged to so yeah. I want to have a drink anyway. with him. Yeah. Well, I think that'd be, I think that'd be fun. They're a fun family. <laughs> um, okay. So what is your favorite work of either fiction or nonfiction outside of theology? I, I'll confess. I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but I have really enjoyed works like uh, Chaim Potox, uh, My Name is Asher Lave, mm. uh, Oscar uh, DeWelos, um, Mr. Ives' Christmas. And, Excellent. Yeah, I enjoy English, um, 19th century English literature as well. Oh, okay. Do you have any hidden talents? Hidden talents? <laughs> oh, Yes, I am a master at imitating the way people walk. <laughs> and I, and I can tell, I can see people from a long distance, and I know who they are by the way they walk, and I can imitate them. Years ago, I, I could regale crowds around a campfire with imitating the walks of their pastors. It almost got out of hand, so I had to stop. <laughs> That's an excellent skill. And you have some colleagues who have some very distinctive walks also. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Uh, I'll, leave, I'll leave you to maybe not share that here. Um, okay, so what food or food combination do you love that other people might find strange? I, I really love barbecue potato chips dipped in mustard. Oh, that does sound kind of good. Maybe it, yeah. maybe the mustard would, uh, would cover up the horrible taste of barbecue potato chips. Oh, please. <laughs> oh, this, this interview is over. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, what's a trend in society that scares you? Conspiracy theories. Mm. 
or, or people, yes, people who are enamored of conspiracy theories, evangelical Christians who are enamored of conspiracy theories. Where is somewhere you've always wanted to travel? Germany. Never gotten to the continent yet. My wife and I both have uh, ethnic roots in Germany. In fact, our, our ancestors grew up within about 100 miles from each other centuries ago, so I'm afraid my wife and I may be cousins. <laughs> wow, that's the, um, that's the most considered answer I think I've ever had anyone give to that question. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Um, I hope that's not what you discover if you are I hope, I hope fortunate so enough to I go to so Germany. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite thing about teaching theology? Aha moments, or what Michael Polanyi would call the heuristic moment, when mm. a light bulb comes on and all of a sudden something about God and God's ways opens up in front of them in animating fashion hmm. and it's life-giving to them and to you i'm sure it is very much yeah. so and what is something in theology that you wish more biblical scholars paid attention to method theological method you set me you teed me up for that i did it's true um what okay speed round over what is it about theological method that you think is lacking in a lot of biblical scholarship? Like what, what aspect of it do we not pay attention to or what would we gain by paying attention to it? Maybe. Well, I'll give a rather furtive reference to an article that was recently written about the topic of my book by a biblical scholar who is, and I, I won't name any names here, but who essentially argued exactly what I'm arguing about the biblical data and the biblical uses of consecration and sanctification word groups, and goes on to say, but it's still okay that we maintain the language of progressive sanctification because people have too much invested in it. It's going to be too hard to change. And it doesn't matter if we use that wording in ways different from how the scriptures use it, because it still serves a purpose. So I'm in the process now of writing a response to a lengthy review that makes this argument. And that to me is a, a very curious and troubling way of not understanding what theology and theological method is. That if, mm. if theology takes the liberty to detach its wording from the text whose truth it intends to represent, we have a, a, a pretty serious methodological misstep in my judgment. So let's talk now about the New Testament, um, because your, your New Testament segment of the book, um, it promises to uncover and overturn some assumptions about sanctification that have accrued. Um, so what are those assumptions that you're talking about? Um, and how do you think the data of the New Testament overturns those assumptions? Well, let me pick on probably the leading and the key assumption, and that is that sanctification is primarily about post-regeneration growth in Christian maturity and Christ-likeness. That's the assumption. That's what it's about. So 
then you that's what you hear when people talk about sanctification. They generally have in mind, pro, or they'll use the terminology of progressive sanctification, and they will use that as a handle for talking about spiritual formation and discipleship. Uh, I'll give you an example of how this functions, and it's an evidence as well. Every time I have done a, a paper at the Evangelical Theological Society on the doctrine of sanctification, the papers always get placed in a spiritual formation section of papers, never in a systematic theology section of papers. And the paper proposers, like myself, we, you know, we have no say over where papers get situated. They either accept your paper or they don't. But every time I've done a paper on the doctrine of sanctification, arguing some piece of what I'm arguing in this book, the papers are automatically placed in the spiritual formation sections of the ETS. Now, that I'm not complaining. That's just telling. Hmm. Uh, that it's come to be used that way. That's a key assumption that drives the conversation. And hmm. it's uh, it's been curious to me how much ownership people have of that phrase, progressive sanctification, not wanting to relinquish that. I'm still hmm. psychologically trying to figure out wh- why is so much invested existentially in this terminology. Hmm. So that's the assumption. And the way I sense the New Testament challenging that or pretty dramatically reshaping that is that you have loads of of textual evidence that simply use it in a different way. That's one thing. Hmm. You have lots of texts that are within that hagios word group that are sometimes translated otherwise. And so the force of what they're saying about sanctification as an accomplished reality, that the force of that is diluted. Uh, you have texts that talk about it in an accomplished way that are blown by and overlooked altogether. And then maybe most troubling to me is you you have this pattern. I'll go back to my, my dogmatic assumption that there, there is a pattern here. You have this pattern of the way sanctification is appealed to, particularly by, by Paul and Peter, as the basis for their imperatives toward obedience. Uh, it's to go back to a fairly familiar Lutheran formulation of the indicative and the imperative, uh, that, that, that needs some nuancing itself, which I try to do in the book. But that formulation, the indicative and the imperative, captures much of what the Pauline and Petrine corpus do when they talk about the responsibilities to grow in Christ. They always anchor that on the fact that God has sanctified you. And that mm. that pattern seems to be at best underdeveloped. And I think to the to the detriment of people in their experiential relationship with Christ. Mm. That pattern is underdeveloped. So you want to draw a careful distinction between the language of sanctification and the Hagios word group and the language of transformation. So what is sanctification according to the New Testament and how is it different from, but related to transformation? If we could just get some clarity on those two terms. Sanctification in the New Testament follows the same basic trajectory that we see consecration taking in the Old Testament, Mm. but it has some additional features to it. 
because it's very Christological and very pneumatological. And being Christological and pneumatological, it's for all those who are in Christ. It's for everybody. That's why I call it, I think, um, a shocking new reality or something. I forget the chapter title. But uh, one uh, really salient example of this is what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, where he calls them, in the plural, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at that against the backdrop of temple imagery and temple language and consecration in the Old Testament, who was it who was it who got to be in God's presence? One person, the high priest, and one time a year. And this rather staggering new reality is that now in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, the, all believers are now the address of the Holy Spirit. You are where the presence of the living God dwells, and you have the exact same access, the exact same proximity to the presence of the living God through Christ that only the high priest had one time a year for centuries. And Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians 3 to say, do you not know who you are? How dare you live this way? How dare you treat each other this way? <laughs> okay, stop that. And we find multiple examples of that kind of argumentation in the Pauline and Petrine co uh, corpus. Hmm. And you actually, you, you spend quite a bit of time talking about 1 Corinthians 6, because you, you say, he said, you are sanctified. And then 1 Corinthians 6 becomes a, a good example of how transformation is rooted in this identity as the sanctified people of God. So what is, so what is transformation um, in a Pauline sense or a Petrine sense involve, or what does it mean and look like? Transformation in both of those senses is our vigorous engagement with those new realities of who we, where we've been located and how we have been brought into the presence of the living God through Christ and by the Spirit. It's our vigorous, wholehearted, both feet in engagement of all that that implies to grow into that, to be transformed into that. So we do have very ample textual evidence in, in both, um, both sets of letters, Paul's and Peter's, uh, that believers are responsible to live into who they are. And that's, that's become a rather common phrase to be who you are, live into who you are, become who you are. And that's a, a pretty good way of talking about the way they're connected, the way they're, the way transformation depends upon sanctification. So the the phrasing that I use several times in the book is that we we can be transformed and we must be transformed because we have been sanctified, but because we've been cleansed from our sin and brought into the presence of the the one true living God in Christ and been actively united with Him. That this is where it's more than just a formal. That's why I don't like the word positional, because that has these kind of static um, geometric connotations to it. But it's, it, it's something dynamically accomplished for us in Christ. Yeah. Now, sanctification resources, it anchors, it orients, and it propels the process of transformation. That, that's why I think they're related. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's 
a really clear treatment of, of, of that. And if, if there's one thing to commend in this book, it's that you've carefully um, separated the notion of sanctification from the notion of transformation, but you haven't made, in the process of doing so, I think there was possibly a risk of making sanctification seem like a passive thing. And you're so clear to say that this is not, this doesn't mean that this is passive. This doesn't mean that we don't bear any moral responsibility or that we're not called to moral transformation, but it's not a bootstraps moral transformation anymore because, because it's grounded in the work and person of Christ and communion with the Holy Spirit. And that is such a different um, formulation of the doctrine um, from what we read in popular level treatments where progressive sanctification um, is what's put to the fore. So I appreciated that. And if we can move on to the, the last section of your book, because it's related to what I just, um, what I just said, you're, um, you do a very, <laughs> you just said you wanted to have drinks with Tom Torrance. Um, you do a very Tom Torrance sort of a move at the beginning of your section, um, because yeah, I'm, I'm, say, I'm totally channeling him. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, because after, after all is said and done, um, the doctrine of sanctification and your reworking is relentlessly Christological. Now, why is that an important move? I mean, Torrance is very relentlessly Christological in so much of what he does. And I can just, because I've had enough conversations with you and, know your feelings about Tom Torrance. Um, I, I, I thought it was interesting that you kind of said it without saying it in the book. So I'd like to hear you talk more about it now. Um, why, why is it so important to have a Christological shape to the doctrine of sanctification? Well, you read between the lines, didn't you? <laughs> that is, that is so important because just a moment ago, I used the word orient that one one thing the the doctrine of accomplished sanctification does for transformation is it orients it. Uh, it it point it gives it a specific set of contours and a specific shape, and that shape is christological. And so it's it's so vital that it be christological in order to differentiate Christian transformation from any other type of growth or personal improvement that anybody can experience. And I have. I had enough conversations with, for example, people in therapeutic fields to know that quite often Christians who are in in the realm of, of therapy, counseling, or uh, helping professions where they may be working with people of any or no faith, and they begin to discover that there are all kinds of resources that can be brought to bear for people to improve themselves or to get better, to be more functional, to be happier people, uh, whether or not they're Christians. And that begins to rather scandalize them when they think about sanctification as that which is the only way that people can genuinely grow or change. And they realize, you know, that's really just not true. Hmm. People of any faith or no faith can avail themselves of resources. I mean, neurobiology is a, a key front and center conversation point about all of this right now, where if you simply know how the brain works, know how neural pathways are formed and reformed, uh, you actually can change a lot of things about yourself. And that kind of flies in the face of, and it really 
disturbs lots of Christians when they've been told all their lives, you can't change yourself, only God can change you. And they pray and they do all the Christian things and they don't change. And then they figure out how the brain works and all of a sudden they change and it had nothing to do with their Christian faith. And they don't know what to do with that. So the Christological shape of transformation is what is is what gives us specific God responsiveness to the transformation we experience. So I can be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and still have lots of other problems, lots of other things in my life that need to be fixed that I don't yet know how to fix. But to the extent that I am becoming increasingly responsive to God, uh, dependent upon the faithfulness of God, reliant upon the, you know, the forgiveness and, and the release and the empowerment that only the one true God can give, I am becoming more like Christ because that's what he did. He was the perfectly responsive one to the Father. That, that's the Christological shape of transformation. It's not just, you know, learning how to have better relationships with my spouse and learning how to be a better parent. And I mean, all those things are fine, but guess what? Anybody can learn to do that. You don't need Jesus necessarily to learn how to get along better with people. I'm not, I'm not trivializing Jesus. I mean, uh, this, <laughs> no, I, this, it's going to light some people's hair on fire probably, but it, um, I'm just trying to differentiate. But you do genuine, need Jesus to become more like Jesus. You gotta, you gotta, yes. And to become more fully human, alive mm. to God. That's, that's what the hypostatic union, that's why the hypostatic union is so crucial to take mm. our humanity and through Christ, make that humanity fully alive to God. That's Christian transformation. That's, which is, which doesn't diminish other forms of improvement, but it's just distinct from them. And, and maybe conversely, when we, when we conflate other forms of improvement with the doctrine of transformation or sanctification, we cheapen that language. Um, and I think, I think you're, you're calling us to something higher than that. Not to, yeah, it one, it's not that one denigrates another. It's just, they're different things and we need to talk about them, to talk about them differently. So we're, we're coming down to the end of our time. So I'm going to do another speed round. Okay. Are you ready for a speed round too? I hope. Okay. Okay. What is something that you've always aspired to do, but you have not yet accomplished? I always wanted to be a great athlete and I've given up hope. I'm too old. It, it wouldn't have happened anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but so I still, I still, um, and now the, have, closed now the gym is closed because of COVID. So. Right, right. So, well, you can be in shape and not be a great athlete. Mm. Uh, I'm in good shape. I'm just not an athlete. So I still have Walter Mitty syndrome. You know what that is? Nope. Oh, the, uh, the secret world of Walter Mitty, James Thurber's. Mm. Yeah, where he lives in fantasies of all the lives he wished he could have lived. Oh. Secret life of Walter Mitty. That's what it was. I'll have to, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Yeah. Okay, Don. Uh, practical jokes. Are they harmless fun or malicious cruelty? Oh, this is really convicting. <laughs> <laughs> they they are all of the above. <laughs> they are they are the they are the meanest fun that a person can have. And uh Don d- does enjoy them. Um 
I think I, I, I do. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps you would like to repent of some things on on air. No, I'm just kidding. on air. Mm. Don Don had um, Don had a, a, a he's has has a series of good practical jokes, but the the best one is when he entered um, entered our our staff chili competition with a can of Wolf brand chili. Yes, canned chili and, from Texas. At canned chili from Texas, and everyone had worked so hard on their chili cook-off competition. And Don not only entered canned chili, but won the competition <laughs> with with canned chili. So I think you can still look up the YouTube video if you are so inclined of Don. And I can yeah. post it on the OnScript website, or I can give it to you to both because I'm oh, sure you want to. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> yes, that was, and that was there was nothing mean about that. That was probably <laughs> my finest hour. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Or maybe the YouTube video after the fact was was your finest. <laughs> okay, so I think yeah, I think it's pretty clear that you think they're harmless fun. We'll see if you're on, on, ba- on balance. Yes, they are. People still okay. hold you a grudge, but that's their problem. Yeah, I think that happened what four or five years ago now. Yeah, 2016. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I still have the okay. trophy. <laughs> Uh, what are the three best things that Texas has to offer the rest of the world? Oh, um, smoked brisket, football, though I have my own ethical misgivings about the sport of football, which is hard for a Texan <laughs> to say. But if you want to know how to play football, that's where you go. American football. Mm. Okay. And uh, a sense of identity for good or ill. So oh. let me refer, let me refer. I know you don't want me to explain answers on the speed. No, round. no, it's quite I'll, fine. I'll, I'll go back to uh, an article Stanley Harvoss wrote in his collection of essays called Christian Existence Today. And Harvoss is, of course, a Texan. And the chapter, the title of this one essay was On Being a Christian and a Texan. <laughs> and as, as tongue in cheek as that sounds, it was a very Just to serious. convince us that they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, that would be your burden of proof. Oh, I see. Okay. But his argument there was that whatever people think of Texas and Texans, you have to admit they know who they are and they have a sense of identity that he thinks is transportable or portable into being a Christian in today's post-secular culture, that you have to have a sense of identity. And so he argues that you can draw on the root system of growing up in Texas, translate that to being a Christian and have a sense of self and identity that will help you be true to our Lord. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now so I can see, I can even make theological arguments for the importance of Texas. There you go. So, so what, it, what does it mean to be a Texan for you? Like what's the mark of Texan identity? <laughs> um, okay. I'll put this in terms that, uh, British listeners will understand the Texans to the U S are the Scots of the UK. Mm. <laughs> so they're, they're the ones who are, are loud talkers, fiercely independent, proud of their heritage, want to think that they're not dependent on the rest of the country. And there's always a minority of them talking about leaving the rest of the country and being self-sufficient. <laughs> So what the Scots, what the Scots are to Great Britain, Texans are to the U.S. Oh, and, there's, that's and, there, and that's a mixed bag. There's good and ill in that. Mm. Mm. So what? it's a proud history for, for good or ill. <laughs> for good or ill. Or it's a history that Texans are 
proud of. That's better said. <laughs> yes, that's more accurately stated. Uh, what is the most important work in theology that's been written the past 50 years? I'll be very predictable. I'm going to say Tom Torrance's God and Rationality. It just barely makes the cut, 1971. But that's mm-hmm. that's the most, uh, I say that's the most important because that's the one most American evangelicals need to read and have never read. Oh, okay. I've never read that. God and Rationality. I'll have to put that on my list. What is one thing that you're most hoping that people who are working in ministry take from your newest book? Hmm. Uh, hope, particularly in the middle of the, the, the me, well, how do I put it? The meandering nature of the Christian growth process. It's very nonlinear. It's jagged. It's, it defies clean assessment of how well we're doing. And that's what, at least in my experience, that's one thing that bogs serious Christians down relentlessly. And I I want the doctrine of sanctification to become a hope-filled, hope-granting doctrine. Hmm. And how do you think, other than writing a book, how do you think that that can happen? What, what has to change for the doctrine of sanctification to bring hope to the people in the pews? I think we have to learn to pay serious attention to the fact that God has made God's own self present to us. Hmm. And that thick or thin, good days, bad days, the presence of the living God is as proximate to us through Christ as was the case in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. Uh, I I confess I haven't fully absorbed that, but I'm working these days on living into that and absorbing that. Because as, as I contend in the book, there is nothing that will in fact change us like the presence of God that will affect, that will affect change. Yeah. And wouldn't it be great if we had Isaiah's response every day here, here. Yeah. That's a really convicting, yeah. Convicting thought that nothing will transform us like the presence of God. And friends, that's all the time we have today. We've been chatting with Dr. Don Payne about his book, Already Sanctified, which you can purchase on Amazon. And even better, if you click the Amazon link on our OnScript page, because then Amazon gives us a tiny percentage of the sale, which helps support the work of OnScript. And thanks so much for listening. And thanks very much, Don, for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.